Hayden Locke, President and CEO of Maramaca Copper. We're developing the Maramaca Oxide Project in northern Chile. Uh, just finished a big year of 2022, quite a transformative year for us as a company and uh, in the planning phase for uh, hopefully another big year in 2023. Hayden, good to be talking to you. Um, nice to see you. Uh, as you say, lots going on, but I think the first thing we need to talk about is the copper price. I mean, it's just popped back up um, towards $9,000 a ton. Um, obviously, it's good for a copper company, but um, kind of your thoughts on the copper market, please. Yeah, well, look, I think um, I think we're all expecting 2023 and even 2022 to be a year where there was a small surplus and therefore the copper price would be under a bit of pressure. We saw a little bit of that pressure last year, but it was seemed to be driven more by the, the general fear of a global uh, recession. And those fears seem to be abating. I mean, you see the numbers coming out of, out of the US and in inflation, um, the talk of peak inflation having already been reached and therefore a, a likelihood that we're going to start to see uh, some some loosening of monetary policy, which could which could lead us back into some into a growth phase. I think people are getting excited by that. On top of that, you see, you know, there's been a lot of issues with uh, copper producing assets not producing at the level that they thought that they would um, in combination with restocking and demand and relatively low inventory levels. And so you know, we're excited to see it back above four. And, um, you know, the, the consensus from our view and all the research that we're reading is it's it's going to be a relatively strong year uh, for copper in 2023. And then the longer term thesis, which we talk about consistently with you, uh, is still very much intact. And we're still we're still very, very bullish about copper in the sort of 10 year time horizon. Yeah, the electrif the electrification theme is going nowhere. And when you look at the the development profile of kind of large projects and the, the, the current profile of existing projects, which are in decline and, um, and falling grades. The, uh, I, I don't know if you saw the, um, the CEO of Cadelka recently came out and said that uh, they're producing 1.7 million tons per annum. But if they can't get the funds to reinvest into the operations, he can see a, a, uh, the future where they're down to 400,000 tons. The amount of money required to just just maintain that uh, sort of 1.5 to 1.7 million tons a year of copper production is absolutely astronomical. You know, they're they're needing to invest. I think the number is something like 40 billion dollars uh, over the next 20 years just to maintain production. Um, and so, you know, the, the financing becomes a big issue in a rising uh, interest rate environment. Um, so I think there's more pressure to come on operations rather than potential for expansion. And, you know, one of the things we always talk about, Maramaca is one of the few projects that can be built in the next, in the short term, in the next five years. Uh, and that, that's a very interesting place for us to be, but it's also a concerning place for the, for the copper market and those people that depend on buying copper. Yeah, well, um, great. We've, so we've set the kind of the macro context. Uh, so you, you said you had a big year in uh, 2022. Let's unpack that a bit and just remind me of the kind of um, kind of a bit more detail in, on each of those key key milestones. You put out a number of um, um, uh, resource studies, and um, you've got the water. And just talk me through kind of where you were at the beginning of last year and where you've ended up. Yeah, I, I always say that the Maramaca project is an exceptional uh, development stage copper asset. It's one weakness if we go back to 2020 and 2021. It's one weakness was it just wasn't quite of the scale that would uh, make people sit up and take notice. And, you know, there's an arbitrary th threshold that's thrown around in the copper industry of a million tonnes of contained copper in your project. Um, we set about trying to address that in 2021. 2022 was all about 
drilling up that new discovery at depth and you know trying to get that to come into a resource um, and so we drilled 40,000 meters of drilling with that being a focus and delivered a resource upgrade in October 2022 which was an exceptional result you know a hundred percent increase in in resource tons uh, we got to that or thereabouts to that magical million tons of contained copper threshold and what that means is it's it's completely transformational for us as a company we go from uh, slightly below uh, sort of 40,000 tonnes a year of production for a 12-year mine life to now we're looking to the future of something between 50 and 60,000 tonnes uh, for a mine life between 12 and 15 years. Uh, so really quite a transformational year from a mineral endowment perspective and obviously the value of the project is going to have increased significantly. Um, and all of those fundamentals which made Marimaca such an exceptional project, its location, a very low strip ratio, um, low capital cost to production are all remain completely intact. So a really transformative year from a value perspective from the project. And then the second aspect was really starting to get prepared for the next phase, which is how do we go from concept to uh, construction and then production? And a big part of that, and you know, one of the biggest issues facing every mining company in the world, but very specifically in, in Chile and even more specifically in the Antofagasta region of Chile is water. And so we signed an option agreement which secures our water supply uh, for a larger scale project. So for a 50 or 60,000 tonne project for the life of the project. Um, that is a huge de-risking milestone for us as a company and it's, it's a really important step. Um, in, in the background and things that we don't talk about as much is the preparation work we've been doing for our permitting. Um, so we've done all of the preparation work required to permit a mine in Chile is all done. Uh, we've reviewed it over and over and, and you know, one of the, the benefits of the location is just uh, how little impact we have on all of the issues that might make it difficult to permit a mine. Um, and, and that's been confirmed by all of the work that we did in 2022. Uh, and so, yes, it was, a, it was quite a transformational year for us and, and we're excited about the start of 2023. Um, let me go back to, um, thank you. It, 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 um, just a couple of things. Um, the water, because you, you can, of course, use seawater. I mean, you're relatively close to the to the um, coast. I mean, you're, you're, you can see it from your project. I mean, there's um, <clears throat> you could easily use seawater. I mean, it's got a and it's used widely in the mineral sector within um, Chile. Do, I mean, did you consider that as a, a as an option or a kind of a fallback position? Well, we are using seawater. So that is that is exactly the option agreement we've signed with one of the local power stations in, in, uh, in the Mechiones Bay uh, who has water extraction rights. And, and the deal with them is we will build a pipeline um, to their project and then they will provide us with water at, at the gate of their project uh, to deliver to our project. And, and all of the metallurgical testing and all of the design that we've been doing for the project assumes that we use untreated seawater in our process. Uh, and that is a, it has an enormous benefit for this project that we don't have to use fresh water. So we're not using any freshwater aquifers, which is a huge, uh, you know, lightning rod uh, for public opinion here in Chile. Um, but also we don't have to build a desalination plant, which is incredibly expensive. I, I've, I've done some metallurgical test work on, um, on leaching. And actually, um, one of the things you typically do is you add salt to your, to your um, leaching solution to improve your um, leach kinetics. So um, I completely understand that seawater Seawater actually helps the processing. 
Yeah. As we get down into the more enriched mineralization, enriched secondary sulfide mineralization, we will actually add salt to our agglomeration phase because it Im improves the uh, overall recoveries and, and leach kinetics by a couple of percentage points. Uh, so you're absolutely right. In the oxide zone, we don't, we don't see any clear benefit of having chloride in there, but we also see no negatives of having chloride in the solution. Uh, obviously, you've got to manage it before it goes into the SXEW, but it's, uh, you know, it's an incredible, incredible benefit for the project. And going back to another one of your comments, you know, about the ability to scale it to 50 to 60,000 uh, tons. Um, in Chile, there's this very strange kind of anomalous, uh, well, it's kind of a slightly ineffective law that your tax regime changes, your royalty scheme changes when you go past 50,000 uh, tons per annum. You know, you suddenly, uh, you know, up to 50,000 tons, there's kind of an incremental royalty scale. And so if you mine 49 and produce 49,999 tons, uh, you get your average royalty load is around 2%. But if you go over by 1%, everything gets whacked with a 5% royalty on the top. Um, with the potential to um, produce between 50 and 60, might the most economic be 49,999 tons? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that law hasn't yet been enacted, although it's been talked about, there's no formal enactment. It's to be debated in the near future. So it sounds like it's moving through, uh, but it's absolutely a consideration for us. And, you know, as part of our, our process of uh, deciding what scale we will take into our definitive feasibility study in the latter part of this year is an analysis of the um, post-tax impact of the new fiscal regime. Uh, and, you know, you can see that uh, at virtually all copper prices. Interestingly, at lower copper prices, it still makes sense to uh, produce at 60,000 tonnes. Uh, but at higher copper prices, it makes sense to produce at 50,000 tonnes. And so I would say if it gets enacted, we will most likely take the 50,000 tonne um, project into into the definitive feasibility study for exactly that reason. And of course, when you, um, I, I know that you added new tons to your resource last year, but when you um, expand your envelope, you, you incorporate more lower grade material into it. And so the your average grade from your first resource to your second resource actually fell. Um, do you see that as a negative? I mean, I think the market was a bit spooked by uh, the, the headline number coming out lower with a lower grade. Yeah, look, it's certainly, um, it's a function of the commodity price assumptions that you use as well. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's, I won't say I'm disappointed by it, but it's always, it would always be nice to see the grade uh, stay the same or go up as you, as you increase the size of your, um, as you increase the size of your project. I think the, the thing I would say is, you know, everyone talks about grade is king and that's true all else being equal, but, um, you know, it doesn't really take into account all the other aspects of the project, which are important when you start to analyze whether or not you're going to make money. Um, one of the biggest positives of the Maramaka oxide project is this incredibly low strip ratio. So we're talking a strip ratio of, of less than one to one, meaning uh, for every tonne of material we move that has economic value, we're moving much lower amounts of waste relative to the vast majority of other projects. And when you do a, an analysis that compares our project on a like-for-like -like basis, taking into account the, the benefit of that strip ratio, um, you know, it's equivalent to us having a 1% grade 
if we were to have a four to one strip ratio, as an example. So it is a significantly higher grade project than meets the eye because of that, you know, that structurally low mining cost per pound of copper delivered to the to the process part. And I think that's one of the aspects that, you know, people overlook when they say, well, you're, you know, you're low grade or they label it whatever they're going to call it. Um, to give you an idea, at $4 a pound, the economic cutoff grade for this project is 0.15%, i.e. you will make money putting 0.15% material on the heat leach. Um, so at 0.45% or nearly 0.5%, uh, we're certainly um, well above the economic cutoff grade and would expect to make significant amounts of money. The other aspect of the project, which is really important, is the high grade core, which is, which is naturally the first part of the mining process is in the first five years uh, of our mine plan. And what that means is all of the capital cost that we put into this project is paid back very early, giving our investors a significantly better return on investor capital. Once you've paid back your uh, capital and you've uh, you returned money to investors, you know, the, the effective economic cutoff grade of the project when you're not including additional capex uh, is lower again. And then taking it one step further, we also have the ability to do dump leaching and the dump leaching cutoff grade is lower again than that because we use significantly less, less acid and less crushing. Uh, so, you know, overall, I'm not I'm not unhappy at all with the grade uh, that we have. Um, you know, I'm, what I'm most concerned about is over the period of the of the mine life. Uh, you know, what's our what's our return on invested capital going to be? And it's even at that grade, it's going to be absolutely exceptional. That's oh, good to hear. Um, and it'll be really interesting when you come to the studies to see the the the, the grade profile on the scheduling scheduling of of the high grade core, uh, the payback of cap, those payback times, um, that'll all, that'll all come out. Um, so, so the, so where you've got to now, and I, I know that the, um, the December drill res result hit some, um, sulfide and I do want to talk about that, but, um, where the project is at the moment in terms of the oxide is that, um, you've got a, a new resource coming out in Q1. So the next few months, you've got a, you've got another, whatever it is, 10,000 meters of drilling to add to it and kind of the transformation or the, 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 the adding um, measured and indicated because you, you can't include inferred in a pre-feasibility study. So that's, so am I right in thinking it's, it's get that resource out and then um, all, um, all guns blazing on the feasibility on the pre-feasibility study. Um, no, it's just, we've taken a slightly different approach, um, but yes, absolutely. We're trying to get the resource out towards the end of Q1, start of Q2. So that, that timeline remains intact. Um, the last drill results are coming in as we speak. The, the team are, are working on that. I think what's really interesting about those next lot of drill results is we found a new high grade center in the northern end of the pit. I think we released some drill results last year that talked about that. Um, we've got some more drill results coming out soon. And what we're seeing is very very exciting for us from a from a grade perspective in that northern end of the deposit. Um, that's likely to lead us to change our mine plan a little bit because it's it's um, high grade from surface in the northern end. So there there may be a little bit of a rejig. Um, in terms of the strategy for uh, 2023, we we're going to deliver our resource, but the critical path for us getting from where we are today to first copper production is the permitting, and so. The big focus for us in the early part of this year is going to be addressing that sulfide drill hole, which will, which we're, which we are very focused on. That'll be part of it. But in parallel with that, uh, we're doing all of the work uh, required to submit our permits, our, our application to build a mine, 
um, by Q3 or Q4 of this year. And that way we get the, the project into the system. And as it goes through the system and we're getting real-time feedback on what the authorities would like to see from an environmental management perspective, we then can incorporate that directly into our DFS and save ourselves quite a significant amount of time at the back end. Um, so the focus in the early part of the year will be permitting. And then, uh, the, you know, the DFS is actually a relatively short timeline because all of the other work required to complete that is already done. Okay, so you're, so the, the the new resource will feed into a DF uh, in, into kind of into a feasibility study. Exactly. So we're, we'll look to to do a DFS. The resource that we put out in uh, at sort of March April is targeting ninety plus percent in the measured and indicated categories, which will allow us to declare a you know a, a decent sized reserve once we deliver that DFS. Okay, good. Um, and so. Do you think it's going to be out this year or was it a potential for it to be kind of um, early next year, the kind of the feasibility study? Um, I think there's the potential that we could deliver it by this year, but we'd need to commence it uh, at the start of Q3 in order for that to happen. And, and you know, then there's uh, juggling around finances and, and what we need uh, in terms of resources to do that. And do we want to take resources off the permitting to focus on the DFS when really permitting is the, the biggest value add from a work program for us? moving that forward and shortening the timelines to being able to commence construction is is for us the biggest value add that we can we can do in terms of engineering it's a critical path item and it, and the, the the shorter it is the closer that npv comes comes real um, um you mentioned cash finance um what do you where where are you on the balance sheet uh, so we have a little over 16 million us on the balance sheet that's enough for all of the work that we've got planned for this year um, but almost certainly sometime late 2023, 2024, uh, we'll need to, to look at uh, financing the next stage. We're actually starting to get quite close to a decision where we would you know, start to look at uh, you know, bigger sources of capital in order to take this project through to production. And so, look, this project is exceptional. It's, it's now very much on the radar of lots of potential funding partners. So the least of my concerns with this project is whether or not we'll be able to finance the next phase. Um, you know, the bigger concerns are moving it forward as quickly as we can and then doing the best possible deal for our current shareholders. Good. Uh, let's move on to that sulphide uh, um, hit because you had the you were doing kind of a geolog geological and a geotechnical hole and you went off the kind of the um, northeast side of the pit and you it was a 240 meter hole or something and it came out at 1% um, total copper with uh, 92 meters at 2%, I think it was. And you, you also gave another 100 and something meters at 1.7%. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was a it was a surprise. Um, I think we if we if we go back to 2021 and 2020, even we we did a lot of work around targeting how we would target you know a potential depth extension for this project. Um, all of the reviews that we've had, everybody knows there has to be a sulphide feeder zone there somewhere at depth, and the question is just how big could it be? And I think through the drilling, we identified that um, there was a a high degree of association with magnetic susceptibility and the presence of higher grade primary mineralization. And so we used that to try and target that for a drilling program. What eventually happened is we made the Maramaka mixed oxide discovery, which is, you know, we were looking for the sulfide extension and what we found was actually the oxides extended quite significantly further at depth. Uh, and so that left the sulfide question unanswered. The issue we faced was the drilling required to drill, and, and perhaps I'll show a presentation so you can so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, so th this is the 
magnetic anomaly that we saw at depth. And remember, this is sort of looking to the north and there's a easterly dipping uh, attitude to all of the structural controls of the Maramaka Oxide uh, project at surface. So it's this large scale magnetic anomaly at depth that we were targeting. The issue we face is as you get deeper, as, you, as you're targeting deeper mineralization, we're having to drill way out here on the eastern periphery and the drill holes in order to test that target are sort of a thousand plus, maybe 1500 meters, uh, very significantly uh, more expensive in terms of our balance sheet that we, that we were willing to spend. So this drill hole from MAD 22, which is the drill hole we reported, um, is drilled on the opposite orientation, so significantly shallower hole. Uh, the risk being that it was drilled down the down the um, down the dip of the extent of the structures from surface. And what it intersected was 100, 120 plus meters, at nearly 1.7 percent majority in chalcopyrite. Um, the true width of that zone is sort of 30 to 50 meters, so it's a so it's a decent um, width uh, sort of pipe of mineralization. Um, and what it's caused is we, we always knew there was going to be something interesting there, but this has sort of caused us to take another good look at exactly uh, why this mineralization is here. Once again, we saw a very strong um, association with that magnetic high. And here you see it in a plan view. Um, this is a magnetic inversion model. MAD 22 is sort of bang in the middle of that. Um, so we're in the process of just taking another look at all of the drill results from the project and trying to identify the logical places for us to follow up and you know, test the theory that there is a sulphide body of significant scale uh, below the Maramaka pit. But what's really interesting for me is, is certainly the depth of this relative to the pit. So if you look at the Maramaka oxide project, this is, this is the pit line from the 2022 resource. This chalcopyrite mineralization would be open pitable. Um, so at 1.7%, this is going to be, uh, if, if there is enough of it to have scale, it would be an incredibly profitable, uh, incredibly profitable ore body um, if, it's, if it sort of hangs together and has continuity at that depth. So what we're planning right now, and again, this is uh, some, some work that Sergio did, um, just looking at the magnetic susceptibility um, and the correlation to the highest grade mineralization. And you see there's almost a perfect correlation with those spikes in grade and, and magnetic susceptibility. So we're then going back and looking, okay, well, logically this, this magnetic high here is going to be one of the targets that we should follow up. Um, either side of MAD 22, stepping to the north and south, going to be very logical to follow up because it's in the middle of that uh, magnetic high. But if you look further to the north, we see some magnetic highs here that are on that same structure that controls the Maranaka Oxide project and Mercedes further to the north and Cindy further to the north of that. So it's really caused us to take a step back and say, okay, well, you know, perhaps we, we weren't, um, you know, targeting well enough relative to the location of these magnetic anomalies. You know, in terms of the size of the prize, we, we put out an announcement in 2022 that gave a sort of volumetric, uh, uh, volumetric calculation of this magnetic anomaly and it was sort of around the 170 to 180 million cubic meters um, which at this sort of specific gravity that we have here is is you know between 400 and 500 million tons of magnetic uh, anomaly um, scale and obviously that prize is certainly worth us following up and and that's the reason we're really spending quite a lot of time with it uh, with Sergio going through okay how do we 
how do we target the next phase of drilling to give ourselves the best possible chance of success? The potential on on the cell phones is is, is clearly huge, but um, you're going to have to be presumably quite careful about divvying up your resources to kind of allocate the most cost-effective exploration uh, in the sulfides to show the potential and yet not divert um, impetus from the advancement of the oxides. Is, is that a kind of a recurring theme you've got at the management level? Absolutely. And it's a, it's a big debate at the board level is, you know, how do we, how do we approach that to ensure that we're still carrying on the momentum um, towards production, which is so fundamental to us delivering maximum value to our shareholders while obviously addressing, uh, you know, something that could potentially be absolutely game-changing for us as a company. Uh, and look, Sergio is an exceptionally experienced geologist. He knows he's done this for, you know, nearly 40 years. Um, so the way we're proposing it and what we what we will most likely do is a, is a very much a tightly gated process where we do, uh, you know, four or five drill holes at the cost of sub sub half a million dollars um, and then stop. OK, have we had enough information there to follow up further? Um, and then, you know, we answer the question of financing after we've had that first follow up a uh, lot of lot of drilling results. Now, half a million dollars, okay, it's it's a decent amount of money, but in the grand scheme of things, it's well worth spending that um, considering the size of the prize sitting below the, the, the deposit that we have today. Yeah, and absolutely. And it, it also, the to some degrees, Marimaka is on the, on the Lassonde curve of that kind of slightly tricky, important bit in the middle where you're doing the studies, which is which is crucial to, to value creation, but sometimes not always rewarded by the market, to say the least. Um, and so the, a few well-judged uh, sulfide holes um, might keep that, the, the, the expiration um, effervescence alive. Yeah, and look, I say this to the board quite regularly. This, the, the project is in the early st- still in the early stages of its discovery. This is, a green, this is a true Greenfields new discovery made by our team. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's regularly full of surprises for us. The Mamic Zone being an example in 2021, um, and 2022, you know, we hadn't expected the oxides to extend that much further at depth, and, and yet it did. And as we drill more and we get a better understanding, we're continually finding new areas of prospectivity and areas that this will continue to grow. And, you know, so we're balancing that with spending enough money to keep those bits moving forward and keeping to add value with the drill bit, while also uh, keeping our eye on the main prize, which is production. Good. And, um, you know, as a company grows and goes from an, from an exploration company, you've got you've, um, Sergio Rivera has done a great job and he's obviously got his exploration team. But you're coming into the study phase now, which is a slightly different kind of maturation phase of a company. Um, how are you approaching that and what, how's the cha- team changing and how do you see that changing over the next 18 months? Yeah, the team has changed uh, pretty significantly over the last six months. So we are, um, you're absolutely right. My experience of going from an explorer to a developer, uh, which I've done now three or four times, so um, I've been through this before, is a, is a quite a challenging transition. It's a different mentality. It's a different, um, it's a different approach. Um, there's a lot more process-driven and risk-management-driven sort of decision-making that's done in the team, whereas exploration tends to be a bit more freewheeling and a, a, you know, a, bit, a bit less focused on the process. Um, we made a key hire last year, a gentleman named Leonardo Hermosia, uh, who was um, VP of project development, capital projects for Barrick in South America, um, has built several mines with Hatch 
and as a principal, so both as a consultant and a principal, um, he joined our team as VP project really to lead the next phase of development, including the permitting aspects of um, design and engineering that very much focused on uh, all tying up all the loose ends before we need to get to DFS and then and then delivering that DFS and and starting to deliver the transition from uh, you know a developer into actually commencing construction. So he's the first key hire. Um, there will be some other changes and we're gradually upskilling and, and filling various key positions. But I think at this stage, we're not looking to make drastic changes to our, um, our structure and therefore our corporate overheads, our overhead and cost, because we think we can still run a very lean team uh, until the end of the DFS. Uh, but during that DFS process, that's when we really start to put some, um, some detail around the, the HR and organic organograms and, and structure of management and, and what, which positions we really need to fill. That sort of comes um, towards the end of that DFS phase. So just um, just by way, by way of recap, just remind me of the kind of the news flow over the next uh, to the to the permitting phase in nine months time. Once once you've submitted your permit um, applications, you know what can we what can the market expect over the next um, you know through twenty twenty three? Yeah, we've still got those ten thousand meters of drilling, um, and and that's all focused on that northern higher grade uh, zone. So. You know, keep an eye out for the for the drilling there, which we think is going to be quite positive for the overarching resource. Uh, obviously, the the resource update, which will be out late March, early early April, um, which is all about incorporating all of those drill results and then delivering something that's close to ninety percent measured in indicated resource. That's our target. Um, and then, in parallel with that, we're working you know pretty aggressively on, on moving those permits forward uh, with the goal that we'll submit the permits. Uh, towards the latter part of the year. Obviously, a big part of the first uh, three or four months of this year is going to be a focus on those sulphide potential. And um, so we're in the process of planning that out. But I think we'll probably drill uh, five five holes in the first pass, um, which we'll then release to the market. And, and you know, fingers crossed, we make, a, we make a nice new discovery there. Um, and then if we do make a new discovery there, then obviously we'll, we'll be a bigger focus on trying to drill that out further. Um, and then leading us up to kicking off the DFS towards the end of the year. Um, and, and hopefully we'll be in a position to deliver it um, towards the end of the year or, or just in the first quarter of 2024. Hayden, thank you so much. Um, I do want to ask one more question, though, which is about your shareholder register. You know, you've, you've had two um, private equity funds as kind of a significant bankers of the company for years. Um, can you just kind of... Uh, and I know you've done a huge amount of work on changing and maturing the, the shareholder register. So could you just tell me kind of where that's got to and and what kind of interest you're getting? You know, how are the institutions approaching the company these days? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, still a challenge for us. And unfortunately, when we went through our previous financing, uh, the copper price wasn't anywhere near uh, where it is today. You know, it was sub $3 a pound copper price and there just wasn't the level of interest from um, the market in general for copper projects at that point, that has completely changed. Um, the feedback we get from meetings with institutions and investors is we absolutely love your project, fantastic. Uh, there's not enough liquidity for us to buy on market. And so do you need money? And the answer for the last two and a half years has been no, we've been very well financed. Um, so I think a lot of groups are waiting and hoping that they can be part of the next financing discussion. Um, and, you know, I think uh, I think we have the potential to to potentially you know to do something that fixes that. But one of the things we want to weigh up is 
you know, we're not going to do a, a, a capital raise at these prices where we're where we think we're materially undervalued uh, at the detriment of our current shareholders. And so, you know, it's um, you know, I think we keep I, I don't see financing as a risk. Um, you know, our, our shareholders are very supportive, but they also understand the benefit of potentially having a bit more free float and uh, potentially liquidity. So it's something that's in our mind. And, um, you know, as we need the next round of financing, we will certainly consider it as an important uh, aspect um, for our financing discussions. You've just joined the OTCQX, I believe. Um, you know, have you seen any pickup in liquidity on, on that or is it too early to tell? Yeah, it's too early to tell. We've got we're going to do a, a bit of a roadshow around to see investors. One of the bits of feedback we got from, um, you know, a large pockets of private capital. So the sort of retail money, high net worth money out of the US was we really like your story. We can't invest directly on the TSX and we don't like the pink sheets um, because of the association with the Wolf of Wall Street. So that upgrade was really to allow them to be able to trade our stock. And now we've got to go out and make sure we tell the story and um, give them give them all the reasons why they should be buying our stock today, not least of which is that we're trading at a significant discount to the to the new value of the project, um, which is quite hard to quantify. But because we we haven't put out a study, but you know just looking at it, if we were a half a billion dollars of value at three dollars fifteen a pound copper, and we're now at four dollars fifteen a pound copper, you'd see a significant improvement on the PEA, uh, which was on the smaller resource, and then you added nearly 100% increase in resource tons, you've got to be seeing a quite significant change in that value from half a billion dollars. Where is it? Somewhere between 700 and a billion, I don't know. Um, but that's the story we've got to get out and tell to encourage people to, to invest in our stock. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it will help when you, if you can update um, the study. I mean, jumping from PEA to feasibility study kind of means that you've got a, a, a bigger leap when you're in the air without touching ground that touchstone point of us of the of a of a study but um oh you're a communicator hey you can go out there and tell them thanks Marilyn. uh good um thank you very much uh look forward to catching up the next time when more drill, drill results come out perhaps when the resource comes out right good. look forward to it good time good thanks a lot thanks